WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And welcome to Our Son Norin. Uh, Our Son is an occasional series where we invite a friend on to talk about their favorite character. Uh, we have done episodes for Pete Wisdom, Cloud Strife, Mr. Freeze, Kate Pride, Supergirl, and most recently Kyle Rayner. But this week we're hanging 10 on a supernova with the Sentinel of the Spaceways, Norin Rad, the Silver Surfer. And joining us to talk about her son, Norrin, is another member of the Comics X family. Uh, you may know her from her coverage of Way of X and Daredevil at Comics XF, or from co-hosting the podcasts Three Panel Contrast and Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow, or from the book Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero, or as Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. Or you may have just read the Silver Surfer primer she did for Comics XF. It's Dr. Anna Papard. Uh, Anna, welcome to the show, and please forgive any bona fides I left out in that introduction. <laughs> well, I'll do a little bit of Kurt Wagner PR management, which is that it is Kurt Wagner and not Wagner. Fair. <laughs> but no, I'm thrilled to be here. Although I don't know about the title, like it's probably wrong to want to make out with my son. So I don't know if I should really call him that for myself personally. That's fair. Yes. Okay. <laughs> good, good to know <laughs> and food for thought for later on uh so uh to start we'll ask with the broad loaded question uh why is the silver surfer your uh fictional uh we're not going to use sun here now uh why is he the character that you wanted to talk about today well he's always been one of my top three so my top three are nightcrawler daredevil and silver surfer so obviously mm -hmm. i read about two of those for comics except which i feel very lucky to do but yeah, there's a number of things. I was trying to think about when I first encountered the character and it was probably during the Annihilation event. I think that's probably when I got into Marvel Cosmic and then I sort of went back and did all the back reading for Silver Surfer after that point. Um, there's a number of things that fascinate me about him. I mean, I do a lot of stuff about gender and sex and superheroes, sexuality. So he's a really fascinating character to me on that level. I love that he's a very romantic character. Superhero romance is my absolute favorite thing in the entire world. And he is one of these characters that he's very sort of centrally informed by romance in the sense that it's like a woman that inspires him to turn against Galactus. It's usually a woman who's his traveling companion throughout the universe. It's like his love for a woman in Shalabal that is one of the central tragedies of his life. And the fact that he is this character who sort of includes female gazes in that way, that includes women in his adventures is like a really big tie for me, but like on a slightly more like esoteric or like, I don't know, like less just fanish level. Well, this is all going to be super fanish. So, I mean, that's maybe the wrong way of putting it, but there's other things that interest me sort of about his embodiment and the way he's presented. I'm very interested in kind of mm, depictions of male bodies in superhero comics. That's something that a lot of my academic work focuses on. So Silver Surfer is a really fascinating character that way. I mean, he's such an objectified character. I mean, he is a perfect silver statue of a man. And he just inspires awe and devotion and worship in people like of all genders and all sexualities. And I find that really interesting about the character and that plays out in some interesting ways in his story. He has a lot of interesting sexual conflicts, you know, sort of his conflicts that he has with his emotions, you know, he's always sort of struggling with who he is and like if he has emotions or not or what the nature of those emotions are and those struggles often have like a subtextual sexual component we can talk about some specific stories in that way the other thing that I really love about the character is that 
I love character, and this sounds like a weird thing to say about Silver Surfer since he is implicated in massive amounts of genocide. But I really like good boys. Like, I don't like antiheroes, I like good boys. And mm -hmm. he is this character who's really just centrally defined by his nobility and goodness. And again, you can argue about whether that's true or not, given like <laughs> his implication as Galactus as Herald. But he is this character who's an aspirational character, who's an inspirational character, and his stories really embrace those qualities in a way that I think is juvenile, but really, really charming as well. I mean, there's a ridiculous quality to him, and you, it's something like you think about that original Stan Lee, John Bushima series, where so many of the issues open with him just slouched on his surfboard, like with an arm thrown over his eyes, just like, why must I wander this earth alone with all of these people who don't like me? Oh my goodness, I can't even stand it. And just that like juvenile emotionalism, you're either gonna love that or hate it about the character. I sort of really love genuineness. And the genuineness of Norrin Rad is a huge draw for me. Okay. Uh, so for the listener, we'll go into sort of the history section uh, uh, of, of this talk. Uh, Silver Surfer was created by Jack Kirby and first appeared in Fantastic Four number 48 in 1966. Now, you will note that I said Jack Kirby and not Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. One of the interesting things about the Surfer historically is that he's probably the only character of that classic Stan and Jack era of Marvel that Stan didn't try to take credit for. Uh, I actually just finished reading a book called Stuff Said uh, that was an oral history of Marvel through told through interviews with Stan, Jack, and others. And it shows largely how inconsistent these men were in talking about who did what when it comes to the Marvel method in the early days of the publisher. Uh, but on this, they were largely consistent. Stan would say, uh, I was looking at pencils for the Galactus story, and all of a sudden I see this little guy floating next to him, and I says to Jack, who's that? And Jack says, uh, I figure anybody who's like a god should probably have a herald, and all the kids are really into surfing now. So I figure I'd make him a surfer. Uh, and I'm both A, paraphrasing, and B, doing bad impressions. But uh, that is the story, and they both pretty well stuck to it and then the problem is later stan basically took the surfer away from jack and and gave him to his buddy john bushima to draw which was one of the things that led to the original lee kirby schism in the late 60s but uh we are we are not here to drown out our guest with ancient history uh anna you did mention that uh your first exposure to the surfer was during uh, annihilation correct yeah i think so i like i can't actually remember but i'm guessing that's probably true I was going to mention something just in, in terms of the Stanley Jack Kirby thing too, which is that the surfer was one of the last times. I think it is the last time that they ever worked together on like the fireside book series, graphic novel, which is just called the silver surfer, the ultimate cosmic experience. And in the introduction to that, um, Stan talks about, yeah, just as you're saying that, you know, Kirby is the creator of the silver surfer and everything and, you know, really frames the story in that way. So it's interesting to see him sort of doing that in 1978, perhaps as a little bit of smoothing things over to encourage Kirby to come back to the book, but <laughs> But certainly you're absolutely right in terms of like, yeah, him framing the story that way. Which is funny because that that Kirby graphic novel was, again, the last thing or one of the last things Kirby did for Marvel before he left the second time mm -hmm. at the end of the 70s when his contract was up. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, Matt, uh, uh, same question to you. What was your what was your first Surfer story again? Uh, Silver Surfer 50. 
the okay. issue that led right into Infinity Gauntlet number one. Oh. It had a big shiny cover of the Surfer, you know, chromium silver Surfer against a Thanos statue in the background, and it was on that same end cap the comic shop I was going to that was the like you know hot book of the week that I would always go in and I would buy whatever Batman comic was there and then usually something from that rack to try something new it's how I first encountered a lot of Marvel books but I read that and it's it is a was a shockingly dark comic for hell's bells I was probably 11 at that point I mean it's this whole thing with Norin's history on Zen Law and it's either I'm killing me that I can't remember off the top of my head I think it's Starlin's last issue on the book I think Mars takes over the next issue I think he takes over at 51 but it's yeah it's a very Starlin sort of this you know the antiseptic Zen Law and high suicide rates and I mean the surfer's father kills himself pretty much he doesn't kill himself on panel but you see the corpse and the gun in his mm-hmm. hand and it's, that image sticks in your head you don't see suicide in com or you didn't i didn't i hadn't seen that much in comics at that point and there's this statue of thanos that thanos has made it's actually his old body that warlock turned to stone at the end of the original Warlock Thanos saga that Thanos is reanimated to dick around with the surfer while Thanos is off having Mephisto try to corrupt him and it not working all too well for Mephisto. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's this just incredibly dark story that led right into Infinity Gauntlet, which is kind of where I fell in love with Marvel Comics, all those, those characters and that Aww. very Starlin-y thing and i mean warlock and thanos have kind of always been my my jam although thanos has become so overdone and is so inconsistently written across books right now that i have various and sundry issues with thanos since since the end of Annihil- uh, yeah, Annihilation when he died ever since his yeah. return from there it's just been this wild inconsistent Thanos and I mean Warlock has not appeared terrible much since then which is a shame because I love that character but yeah uh, I could ramble on about Cosmic Marvel for a while but I'm not the guest so I will stop now <laughs> oh, no I'm happy to talk about that I mean well if you want to link it back to Silver Surfer we could talk about some of the great things that Starlin does with the Thanos and Silver Surfer relationship but you did write about in the primer a little bit because I chose a storyline from that run the Dynamo City Saga I kind of mm. named it because you know it needed a name but um, I love the things that like he does that Starlin does during that run with Thanos as a foil for Silver Surfer like the issue I really thought about putting on the primer and oh, I'm not going to get the issue number right but um, it's this issue um, just before the Dynamo City Saga where you know he wants to teach like Nora a lesson about you know life and death because Thanos is kind of trying to pitch him on this like I'm going to kill half the people in the universe this is actually a good idea and like you should understand this you're Galactus's herald right and Silver Surfer's like no I'm so good like I value life blah 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 and doing his usual bit you know protesting too much so Thanos takes him to this planet full of all these like adorable little like mouse-like creature aliens mm-hmm. and then 
you know, tells them within a week, you know, they're all going to be like killing each other and resorting to cannibalism and it's going to be awful. And Silver Surfer's like, no, that can't possibly happen. So they leave. And then sure enough, in the week, that is what's happening. And Thanos is like, yeah, when you came to that planet, you brought like, you know, a virus from space into the planet and this affected all the people. And now they're in the middle of this plague and half of them are dead. See, you did that. And so Silver Surfer has this choice of whether to go follow Thanos or go back to the planet and heal the creatures on the planet. And of course he goes back to the planet and heals them, but he's still responsible for half of them dying. And you know, Thanos gets to have this big laugh about how naive the Silver Surfer is and everything because you have like these forces of life and death. But of course it's complicated, right? By the complications that sort of Starlin weaves into Thanos's motives. I mean, Thanos is obviously a really bad guy wanting to kill half the universe, not redeemable, but he is always making a point about like balances and cosmic forces and like how is it different than what Galactus is doing and all of that stuff because Norrin really wants to believe in himself as a force of light but of course gets that questioned again and again and again and Thanos is a really useful foil for that and he's so there's a lot of comedy to it too because Thanos is so manipulative and the Silver Surfer is so not and so naive and so like doesn't even understand when he's being manipulated which is one of the things that I love so much about the Dynamo City storyline because he just up against sort of forces of corruption he is helpless because he's like but I just want to go to a job and earn money no there's taxes what this is so unfair and he just has no idea <laughs> it's just hilarious but so in character of course he would be like that Norrin Rad has no concept of like <laughs> those guys like he was living in like Zen Law which is like Star Trek world where everything is perfect and then like had the power cosmic he has no idea how to like go to work and do a job he doesn't know any of that and it's hilarious that Thanos picks that as the thing to break the surfer which is a really accurate read <laughs> Uh, for our listeners, that issue is issue 35. I, I'm one of those people that has that obnoxious memory for issue numbers. <laughs> I apologize. This is not an, I'm um, actually, this is a, I figure maybe people might want to track the issue down. So I will oh, give you. That is helpful. I love when someone is like that because I remember stories and I don't remember issue numbers. And because I've done so much of my comics reading, like not when these things were coming out everything kind of blends together in this big mess and that's a particular problem for silver surfer because he has so many stories that aren't set in continuity so like if you're trying to figure out which things count and which things don't it is a nightmare <laughs> that dynamo city story is a very starlin Oh, so Starlin. Starlin loves his social commentary i mean the universal church of truth stuff mm -hmm. dread i mean dread star did it again in DC with the church of lady sticks. He just has a, a, a bee in his bonnet about both religion and capitalism. You, you can't yeah. win with Jim Starlin. Any type of organization of society really is just a bad, bad thing. Uh, and then often like critiques of, you know, the creative industrial complex woven into that, right? Like in the dynamo oh, city story. And I mentioned this in the primer that, you know, one of the things that Norrin tries to do to earn money is to sell his dreams and it gets like put into this tacky variety show and they like strap him down and painfully extract his dreams from him and he just feels like cheap and used and manipulated and I'm like ooh, feelings there about like working in the work for hire industry huh this is definitely a guy who worked at Marvel in the 70s yeah <laughs> and at DC he did one issue of Legion of Superheroes before he jumped ship because they completely rewrote the issue. Mm. 
one or two not he did not do more than a couple and i think he did two one was under jim starlin and then there's another under a pseudonym because they completely redid the issue and he would have none of it mm. now i'm curious because we're talking about that starlin run and it's towards the end of that it's in issue 48 where the surfer confronts Galactus about Galactus numbing him mm. to the atrocities that he committed. How does that settle in with that naivete? Is, is that something that kind of appeals to you because it gives him an out or is it a sort of cheap, a cheapening of the choice he made or something else? Yeah, I've thought a lot about that over the years, and they've done various things with it at different times, like contextualized it differently. Like sometimes he doesn't even remember anything that he does. Like sometimes, like I think the original thing was that his soul was altered to make him more pliable to these things because initially he had the compulsion to not lead Galactus to inhabited worlds, and then he gets his soul kind of altered, and other storylines have given him more or less agency in the things that he did. I don't really know which version of it I prefer necessarily. There is just a problem where the character is completely unredeemable if he had any agency, because that's a lot of genocide. So what do you do with that? And I sort of like the grain of making Norin like a little bit responsible to the extent that in the origin story, and this is present in like the 1968, like Silver Surfer number one origin story, he has a kind of dissatisfaction with the world of Zenla. He doesn't like the antiseptics of that world. He doesn't like the lack of emotion of that world, which is, you know, an interesting through line for his stories. And he wants to be an explorer, but his people shun exploring. So I've always liked the idea that he joined up with Galactus and agreed to become his herald as this whole sacrifice, but also as kind of a selfish choice to get out of his situation and in a way to get away from Shalabal and like the trap of domesticity, which, you know, the masculine trope and whatever but it's still an interesting thing to explore in terms of the motivations of that character because he sees himself as so noble but perhaps he never was that noble so that's sort of where that starts and then different writers do different things with you know figuring out the full implications of that and then at various times the numbers of deaths that he's responsible for has gone up and down depending on the writers and that's like another way that they kind of negotiate it like, yeah, I don't know. So I like to have for him to have a grain of agency in it because I think giving him that type of kind of selfishness, I think is important to me, but it is hard, right? Because if he remembers this, if he had agency, if he was doing any of this intentionally, like you can't come back from that, right? So it is a problem with the character and that's why it sort of gets redone so many times. Like in terms of the continuity things that have been redone the most times, it's like, how long was he the Silver Server? Like, sorry, how long was he Galactus's Herald? How many worlds did he actually lead him to? How much death is he actually responsible for? How much agency did he have in that? And they've done it over and over again so many times. Since Stan had laid claim to the Surfer for so long, there aren't as many long runs by different creative teams on the surfer there's that one particularly long series that ran for 150 ish issues and then a couple of shorter ongoing since and a few mini series uh, with that in mind what is your favorite era or creative team on the silver surfer 
I gotta go JM DeMatteis and Ron Garney. I mean, there were other artists on that run as well, but you know, I picked for the number one choice in my primer. I, I had to go out of left field with it and pick something a little bit off because a lot of my other choices were pretty conventional, I feel like. But um, I picked an issue, number 126 from Silver Surfer Volume 3 called The Barrier by DeMatteis and Garney. And I just think that run, like it was a weird year at Marvel Comics. You know, that was that era of like heroes were born and everybody was off mm -hmm. in another dimension. There was a lot of weird stuff happening. So, I mean, part of the context for that series is that the Fantastic Four are quote unquote dead. But of course, they're not really dead. They're just somewhere else because Marvel was like going through all of those shakeups. Right. But um, in terms of a series that combines you know, the cosmic themes of the Silver Surfer, the battle of life and death, the how responsible is he for his actions, the, you know, original sin that he commits by becoming Galactus's herald, merging that with the romantic impulses of the character and the humanity of the character and making that believable, you know, because there can be a problem with the character where he becomes a little bit too cosmic in the sense that he becomes just an idea, like he becomes just a symbol. And I like some stories like that because stories like that can have value. You know, I mean, thinking about something like um, the Requiem series, um, it was uh, JMS and uh, Esad Ribic. And that's a beautiful series. That's a series about the Silver Surfer dying and like everything. And I mean, Ribic is so good at cosmic stuff. So, I mean, you know, it's worth it for that reason alone. But, um, but yeah, in a series like that, he's very much sort of an idea and he's very distant, you know? And so, Demetrius does this thing where he does a commentary on that by having the Silver Surfer has lost his emotions in that series and he goes back to Alicia Masters to help his be recovered and that's a wonderful wonderful callback to like their original meeting and sort of the affinity between those characters. I don't know what my feelings are about them like having a long-term traditional kind of relationship. I almost think their bond is more spiritual although it does have a physical component as well but yeah, I don't know. It's just one of those series that takes so many things that I loved about the character and distills them and just does them really well. I think some of the plotting of that series, like toward the end, especially it kind of unravels is like not as good as it could be. But in terms of the character work, it's probably the series that it, like, I know it's the Silver Surfer series that I've read the most often. I mean, it's the one that after reading it digitally, I had to go and get like floppies of just so I could like have it, you know? So it's definitely the one that sort of has that place in my heart. It's my favorite romantic Silver Surfer. Like he's got a number of sort of romantic storylines with various people, but the Silver Surfer Alicia relationship in terms of the arc of it and everything. I mean, I'll say a couple of things about it, just a couple of things that I like about it. There's interesting stuff in that series with the sort of comparison between the Silver Surfer and the thing as love interest for Alicia. Um, <laughs> I have written an award-winning essay about superhero penises. So this is something I think about from time to time. But um, Alicia's attraction to two men that suggestively must not have sort of a conventional sort of sexuality because mm -hmm. their bodies are not conventional, right? And we don't know what their sexuality is and I don't wanna sort of like assign that to them because we just don't know. But at the very least, she's somebody who sort of, you know, has empathy for, for people. And that's sort of like foundational to her character. It is like her empathy that inspires Norrin to turn against Galactus, right? And there's so many interesting visuals in that series where Alicia is in this room where she's got sculptures of all the superheroes, right? 
And how does Alicia have sculptures of all the superheroes? She must have very intimate relationships with these superheroes to be mm -hmm. creating sculptures of them, right? Which is a really interesting aspect of her character that, you know, people make like snide jokes about it, but I don't want to be snide about it. I think it's like a genuinely kind of beautiful thing, the relationships that she has with these characters because she has these genuine bonds with them. And so she has like these statues of Ben Grimm and like Silver Surfer in her apartment. And she like touches one and touches the other and thinks about the difference between them. You know, one of them is like a monster who struggles with his monstrousness. The other one is so beautiful. People like fall to their knees at the glory of his presence. And yet he's so untouchable because of his beauty and because of his silver skin, like his untouchability becomes heavily thematized in the run. And when they finally are intimate with each other, there's sort of two catalysts. One is that they merge bodies. Silver Surfer is dead and in an astral form and steps into Alicia's body and it turns them into like a female presenting version of the Silver Surfer. Hmm. And then in the aftermath of that, they finally have their first, you know, sort of more traditional sexual encounter. You know, he brings her through the window of her apartment and silvers down and then they embrace on the bed and they kind of have a more kind of conventional romance after that. So that's sort of like all of the things I want. So yeah, your your description of, of Garney's art was was beautiful. Uh, you know, when I when I think of the surfer, I tend to think of Ron Lim whom you also mentioned, uh, you know, for no other reason than one of my ins into comics uh, was the Marvel Universe Series 3 trading card set, which had a Romulan <laughs> Surfer. And yeah. if you look at the, just the designs of those cards, it was all space. You know, it was very pro-cosmic, uh, you know, which is interesting because I think that's probably around... Well, no, because you were like smack in the middle of the Infinity crossover so yeah that was that was peak marvel cosmic right around then yeah that would have been in between war and crusade yep i'm pretty sure there's a man bun magus card in that set there is <laughs> that that dude <laughs> afro in the 70s man bun in the 90s he is his hair is always timely evil adam warlock is fashion forward mm -hmm. yep <laughs> Actually, he came back. Not a lot of people know this. Uh, you know, Jim Starlin's still done a lot of those Infinity OGNs through that time. Uh, Magus uh, in the early 2000s wore a lot of Von Dutch trucker hats. <laughs> oh, oh, Adam. Uh, speak, speaking there. Um, so when it comes to your sort of surfer archetype, is he space Jesus, space Hamlet, a uh -huh. little bit of both? He seems to swap between the archetypes, which so does Adam Warlock. And it's kind yeah. of odd that they both exist next to each other, but somehow are still very distinct, mostly because the surfer tends to be, as you said, a really nice guy, and Warlock is mostly kind of a jerk. I love Adam Warlock. One of my top three Marvel characters, but he is kind of a jerk well he's i mean if i was going to be kinder to adam i would say that he is just a much more introspective character in a certain way than the silver surfer is like the silver surfer seems like he would be introspective but he's like introspective in the way that like a 15 year old is introspective and adam's a little bit like that too because he's very melodramatic 
but he's definitely wiser in certain ways than Norrin Rad is. Norrin Rad's kind of just like appreciates the wonders of the universe. Like he's either 15 or super stoned. And like, you know, Adam is like a little bit more like I'm contemplating like the deep mysteries of like the soul. And that's just not like really Norrin's deal. Adam also has self-admitted mental health issues, yes. which I don't think Norrin is quite introspective enough to really sit back and analyze just how scarred he is by all that Galactus stuff, except when he's really moping on that surfboard. And that's yeah. a lot of moping and not yeah. so much introspection. Yeah, like I don't consider him you would think he'd be sort of a wise character, but I don't think he actually is. He's got sort of that thing where his greatest weakness is kind of his own emotional, you know, immaturity in a lot of ways. I mean, that's usually the thing that kind of screws him up. He has the power to do anything. But I mean, the great tragedy of him is that he has the power to do everything except fix the fact that societies are broken. And that's the thing that upsets him the most, right? He can do physical things very well, but <laughs> that it's usually his emotions that betray him even when he's trying to solve social problems because he does want to solve problems with force and just be like hey i gave everybody food everything's fine now and that never works out he's just not really sort of like wise about human nature in that way and you know partly from having his emotions repressed or soul changed or whatever happened with him in galactus but also because of the nature of the society that he comes from which was not a society that had want or you know supposedly various things have been done with the Zen Law Society over the years to make it more problematic, but it was supposed to be, you know, a utopian society in which he had no, no knowledge of hardship, right? Makes me want to go back. I don't think I've ever read that Silver Surfer Superman crossover, and that was <laughs> that period where Krypton was that same way, that very mm -hmm. antiseptic, very hardcore science fiction 1980s John Byrne Krypton and it makes me wonder just how those parallels would work because then you get other Kryptons that are much more 50s sci-fi and bombastic and that wasn't that Krypton but Zen Law seems very much in line with that particular era's Krypton. It is sort of referenced in that comic I like sort of flipped through it recently like as I was going doing all the Silver Surfer stuff but Probably not, you're not going to be happy with it being fully teased out, but they certainly like make that comparison. So uh, in the primer that you did for the surfer, uh, one of the things you said in the intro was the surfer basically embodies the Beach Boys song. I just wasn't <laughs> made for these times, but as a superhero in outer space. And, you know, I know part of the surfer's origin is Jack Kirby wanting to, to put a surfer in a comic. Uh, but I honestly, like I never drew a parallel between him an actual 1960s surf culture, even though it's a guy on a surfboard who was created in the 1960s uh, until I read that line today, uh, preparing for this interview. Uh, and then I started to think to, I started to think like, wait, is, is the surfer Brian Wilson? Because Wilson, <laughs> Brian Wilson comes up in this sort of surf pop factory, uh, you know, Marvel be also being a pop factory, but struggled with depression. And as he's gotten older, has explored all these sort of richer darker themes uh in his music uh you know you could certainly say that the, the surfer's done a lot of of soul searching over the years is there a parallel there or am i like grasping at straws and this is nothing 
no I chose that for a very particular reason I have thought about that song like a lot as just a theme song for Silver Surfer and I do think for me there's kind of a parallel between the Beach Boys thing and Brian Wilson in particular in the sense that it's like art pop right I mean like but in a sense that you know it is very genuine and like that's exactly how the Silver Surfer is and it's genuine in kind of an artful way that's almost accidentally profound because it's so genuine. And like, I don't, you know, that's ascribing a lot of things to Beach Boys music, but I mean, I think that those are like sort of things that like fans of Beach Boys music and Pet Sounds era stuff in particular, like really sort of think about that, you know, it's this genuine Americana that becomes profound through its unabashed genuineness, right? And, you know, the kind of star text of Brian Wilson is really kind of bound up in that too. But yeah, I did choose that on purpose because I do think about sort of like, I don't know, that context of Brian Wilson and sort of who he was at that time. I don't, I'm not saying that that is a definite influence on the Silver Surfer, but they're definitely mm -hmm. sort of like equated in my mind. When I think about those panels from the Bushima League like series in particular, I just always think of that song. It's just perfect. I like have thought of doing like one of those fan videos set to that and I'm just like I'm too lazy but if someone wants to do that for me as a gift I would very much accept it and now we're going to get into a little more of the traditional superhero-y questions because this is something that I was thinking about when going back and looking at the surfer who makes for a good principal enemy for the surfer I mean outside of Mephisto you have you know that Thanos period but Thanos really was just there because all the guys that he was usually fighting were dead and then I mean there's the other heralds of Galactus but there aren't a lot of silver surfer rogues does the surfer have that same problem as Superman where to make a villain a threat you have to make them so powerful or go to the same well as the surfer to justify them as a threat or is it that the surfer is better when dealing with those thinkier societal problems and not having the same combat roles as, you know, Ben Grimm, who goes into, you know, smash or clobber, I suppose, because the Hulk who smashes. Well, I'm going to I'm going to go. I don't know. I'm going to go profound with you here and say that the Silver Surfer's greatest enemy is himself. And that's sort of the nature of a lot of his stories. I mean, no one's like, out, I mean, sometimes people are out to get him. Like he gets sort of roped into various cosmic conflicts, but he's an immortal guy with all the power in the entire world. He could just do nothing. I mean, it's not like he's forced to do any of these things. You know, he's got a pretty sweet deal and yet he's continually unsatisfied with that sweet deal. And that's what gets him into trouble. That's a terrible answer. I'm sorry. No, it's a, it's a good to, answer. I, go. I was actually, I was going to start clapping and saying good answer, like, like a supportive family member on Family Feud. It's such a cheat. It's such a cheat answer, though. But like, you know, Mephisto is the character that he's most often associated with, I would say. But I mean, I'm not sure if I'd agree that Mephisto, like, is a great foil for the Silver Surfer necessarily. I mean, he just always make I mean he's similar to Thanos in the sense that he's a very like manipulative character who forces the Silver Surfer to question the nature of his soul and his own mor mortality and morality and all of those things. So in that sense he's a useful foil for the Silver Surfer. But yeah, I don't know. Mephisto is like 
I don't know, I saw someone make some like Twitter joke or something recently that like everybody's clamoring for Mephisto to like show up in the MCU. And you're like, when has that ever been good in a comic when Mephisto just shows up? I mean. <laughs> My favorite Mephisto panels of all time are the end of Infinity Crusade, where he had agreed to help Adam Warlock and Thanos in exchange for a cosmic cube. And Thanos agreed. Warlock's like, what are you thinking? And in the end, Mephisto shows up to collect his boon and Thanos gives it to him. It's like, I would allow me to do anything. Include destroy you, Titan. Wait, it's not working. I was like, yeah, I said I'd give you a cosmic cube. I never said it would be a functional one. And Mephisto just deflates. It's like, (laughs) yeah, that's what you get for... Being Mephisto. Thanos has, you know, screwed you around how many times since you did that whole Infinity Gauntlet thing? You really think you were going to come out on top this time, Mephisto? No. Well, he's like a pathetic demon, is Mephisto. I mean, it's hard to take him seriously. He is one of the lesser members of Marvel's collection of miscellaneous fake Satans. Yeah, I was going to say their collection of Satans, yes. Satan is pal Satan is pal Satan and his other pal Satan. Yeah, I was thinking the funny the funny thing is like when you talk about Mephisto anymore, like nobody even like they don't talk about Mephisto and, and the Silver Surfer in the same sentence. It's always like Mephisto ended Peter Parker's marriage, or you know, uh, Mephisto turned Wanda's kids into baby demon hands or whatever. I'm not jumping down that rabbit hole right now. But you, 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 have the, you get the general gist of what I'm saying. <laughs> he first appeared in Silver Surfer. He was a Silver Surfer villain for a very long time. I mean, he would show up elsewhere. I mean, there was that Mephisto versus miniseries. But he's <laughs> not, generally speaking, been a major foil to anybody else until one more day. And then suddenly it's like, yeah, he's a Spider-Man villain. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, give, give me Lucifer Morningstar any day when you want your comic book devils. <laughs> now, also, how does the Surfer fit in your mind uh, as a team character? He's been on you know a couple of those short-lived cosmic powerhouse teams, the Star Masters, the Annihilators, and has been a defender on and off. But between his solitary nature and again the fact that he is himself so powerful he doesn't often fit and i usually kind of prefer my surfer stories where he's just off being the surfer and not trying to fit into a narrowly defined superhero team role yeah i don't love him in a team context i think it can work for limited stretches i mean he's a good team up character like with one other character like there's a lot of stories like that that i really enjoy like whether it's you know, male characters or female characters or other types of characters. I mean, that it can work in a lot of different ways. Um, but yeah, teams, I don't know. The one good thing about it is that it does something similar to what I like about the Demetrius series, which is that it forces him to, you know, reckon with the things that he usually turns away with, you know, like community, you know, like his emotions. I mean, even when he does have his emotions, he's always like suppressing them or repressing them in various ways and like denying that he has them in various ways, because that's sort of like, I don't know. I think he's got sort of an obsession with his own purity too, but that's sort of a whole other Freudian thing. But um, I would say that 
probably my favorite instance of him on a team is that like original defenders arc like the original original one and like I don't know how many issues it's like in the fourth or fifth issue where like the team basically disbands and there's this wonderful panel where like everybody's just quitting and Silver Surfer is flying away and the woman they tried to save is just wailing crying and then Doctor Strange is like in the foreground being like well this didn't work out well at all (laughs) (laughs) wonderful I I think about that panel randomly and smile it's an entire team of sunfires. I know. It's not a good idea. <laughs> so we, we talked a little bit before about the surfer's relationship with the Alicia Masters, a thing I actually didn't know existed. But, <laughs> you know, uh, you had foreshadowed we were going to get into uh, a little bit, a lot of it, uh, the surfer's love life. So, you know, he's had a few relationships, obviously, uh, in his lifetime. Shalabal, Frankie Ray, Don Greenwood. Uh, Alicia um... Mantis. Oh, look at this! Right during the Engelhart run. Yeah. All right, I'm learning lots. Uh, you know, do you have a a personal uh, OTP? I guess with uh, with with the surfer. <sighs> Not really. I. As much as I love Surfer and Alicia together, I. It's not a relationship that could work long term. I mean. Mm-hmm. It's hard to think about a relationship that could work long term for him. And I don't know that he's the kind of character that is set up for that kind of thing. I mean, he's I don't know. I don't think he's like as much as he like seems like he'd be the monogamous type because, you know, he's got this like long thing with Shalabelle of like she's his one and only and everything. But that keeps getting questioned. Right. I mean, they never resume their relationship after he leaves to be, you know, the Silver Surfer. There's. That whole continuity, by the way, someone did ask about that on Twitter and like, yeah, so that makes no sense. I mean, what actually, so if you go to like Shalabelle's like Marvel fandom wiki, I know this is a bit of a tangent, but she's actually listed as Shalabelle bracket construct. And the reason for that is that she doesn't exist because Zenla was destroyed a real long time ago by this Mm. race of aliens called The Other. And in a great act of mercy, like Silver Surfer, while he was still Galactus's herald, like found out about this. And in a great act of mercy, Galactus like restored the planet all like as hologram, like sort of holograms constructs. And that's what Shalabal was for all like. So this is like retro. This is like retcon during the Demetrius run. So then it becomes like every previous story that it featured Shalabal. She wasn't actually alive. And this is like, this is the thing that causes like Norrin to repress his emotions and everything. This is the huge trauma of that run. So she shows up in like the next time, like she kind of shows up after that reveal in the Dan Slot run and she shows up and is attacking Norrin and everything. And I mean, it makes no sense because that's not how it was left. And she isn't actually her and that doesn't really come up. And I'm like, if she's like a construct hologram thing, how is she on earth? And like... You know, lots of people have issues with dance law for other reasons. I didn't hate the series itself, but that element of it made me crazy. I was just like, why is she here? This is not explained. And it was frustrating. And there's been a number of miniseries where she's like died, but they don't count in continuity. Like in Silver Surfer Homecoming, she dies, but that doesn't sort of get taken up as canon. So yeah, their relationship is complex, but I mean, what originally happens with them is that he gets free of the earth and goes back to Zen Law and is like, hey, we can be together now because I'm free. And then 
she's like kind of moved on with her life and is like the empress of Zen law now and can't just go off with him to the stars and he doesn't want to stay there. So they're not really together. And that's when he has the, he has during that time, the affair with Mantis. It's a brief affair, but an important affair. So yeah, I don't know if I have like an OTP. There were things I liked and didn't like about the Don Greenwood romance. I know a lot of people really like it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It, it's hard to talk about a character like Don because I think she's a character that some people really liked and some people didn't like. And I feel like anything that I say that's like bad about her sounds like I'm like hating on a female character and calling her a Mary Sue, which is a term that I hate. Mm-hmm. But she is a little bit of that. And so okay. it's tough because I don't know. I don't want to be someone who calls female characters like that. Like Dawn is like a wish fulfillment fantasy that you can like read into that story as like this cool girl who gets to go on adventures with the Silver Surfer and is like funny and awesome and like goofy and perfect and like a pixie dream girl and all of these things i guess that would be a better thing yeah go ahead matt if she's clara oswin oswald it's very much the same archetype at as the same as the companion at the same time on doctor who which that slot run is yeah it's doctor who fanfic yeah. Mm-hmm. With the Silver yeah. Surfer in place of the Doctor because Dan Slott could actually get to write the Silver Surfer and not yeah. the Doctor. Yes. Which would be the main yeah. I mean that's you know, I'm I'm not hating on somebody getting a chance to do something, but it really reads much more like Doctor Who than it does like the Surfer in places. It definitely does. And I mean, I don't want to be mad at anybody who finds like that romance in that comic really moving because the end of it, you know, it is moving. It's like mileage on it will vary but you know like I don't want to I don't want to hate on that because I think it's perfectly fine just not my personal favorite thing so I don't really I don't really have an OTP for him I mean I will say about (laughs) I often talk about the Mantis relationship as one of the times when I first kind of became interested in kind of those sexual aspects of Silver Surfer as a character because you know he's an interesting character in that sense because he's cut off from his emotions. And as I mentioned, like at the top, like his sexuality is often bound up in that. And that really comes to a head in the beginning of the Engelhart run with the relationship with Mantis. And Engelhart is someone who has done some of my most favorite things with sort of superhero sex and romance, particularly in the Vision and the Scarlet Witch um, miniseries from the 80s, which is one of my favorites of all time of any comic. So in this Engelhart story um, with Marshall Rogers on art, uh silver silver has this kind of you know team up with mantis and they have this kind of intense argument about whether he has emotions and it's very strongly telegraphed that they're actually arguing about whether he has sexual desire and she's like you're super into me and he's like no i don't have those kind of base emotions anymore i'm the silver surfer and like it keeps getting more and more intense the argument and they like end up kind of like (laughs) taking their fight to an asteroid and like having sex and then he's like in a much better mood after that (laughs) if you read it it's like very heavily that it's not just me bringing that to it that's like intentionally what like the Mm -hmm. meaning of that story was and so like yeah I don't know aspects of that with the character are interesting because I mean what is his sexuality right he's got the power cosmic he presents as not having you know genitalia so like I mean he can convert his body into whatever shape he wants so I mean it just depends on what he draws pleasure from and it depends on what his partners want and there's a lot of possibilities there Mm -hmm. I remember I posted something to social at one point about like Silver Surfer being sexy and then someone was like yeah but he's probably like all metal and cold and I was like 
you realize he can be whatever you want him to be because he has the power cosmic and they were like oh yeah i didn't i was like yeah <laughs> you just have to have an imagination with noren and to everyone out there, if metal and coal is your thing, we're not here to yuck your yum. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I'm saying, like, whatever you're into, he can provide. Um, two things on that. Uh, one, taking their fight to an asteroid is my new, is a new, is my new euphemism. Uh, <laughs> and, and two, the, the, the deep, pleasured sigh Matt let out when you said the words Engelhart and Rogers. Because if you want to talk about superhero sexuality, the Engelhart and Rogers Detective Comics run mm. is often the the run that people put forth as Bruce Wayne going through puberty. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's a great run. I think it is often given a bit more credit than it's due as someone who is a rabid Batmanologists. I mean, I, I think I, I'll take O'Neill and Adams over Engelhart and Rogers just for its de- definingness of Batman. But Engelhart and Rogers gives us the laughing fish, and everything's better with some Joker fish. Well, you know, I and, think Engelhart and Rogers is sort of like the proto, right? Like they're the Meet the Beatles of of Batman runs, and then you get O'Neill and Adams, and that's your like Rubber Soul Revolver, like Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> It also gives you that kick-ass Deadshot costume that stay, stayed through this day. Before that, he was just a dude in a hat and a suit with a gun. It's so it's so painful because there's like those two issues of Excalibur drawn by Marshall Rogers, and they're so bad. And like he must have had like a day to do it. We spent so much time on the Excalibur podcast talking about it. Like, what the heck happened to Marshall Rogers? He's like amazing and these issues like are drawn by someone who doesn't know how to draw it it's so bad I mean we're like clearly he had like a day to do it and it was like a total rush job because there's no other explanation mm-hmm. absolutely uh so we, we've we've talked about the Dan Slot run already uh you know kind of looking at modern uh surfer stories uh you know did you get anything out of Silver Surfer Black uh you know the Donny Cates and Trav Moore book visually I think it's stunning uh, but obviously I don't care much for Kate's repeated attempts to make null happen. So yeah, you can take and leave parts of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was, when she was in Silver Surfer stories, there was like at least three that I put on the list just for the art. And that was one of them. I mean, mm-hmm. I tried to make sense of the story. I really did. <laughs> and like, there's, there's elements of it that are, you know, something, but at the same time, it's the art that sells that book and Mm -hmm. uh, yeah definitely like I'm not excited about trying to make null happen either but um but yeah I I liked it in the sense that it was an ambitious book I mean it had some like I mean we haven't talked about Silver Surfer Parable which would be like the Mm -hmm. direct influence on that book the Stanley Mobius series um but yeah I mean it speaks to the fact that the Silver Surfer, part of the reason why his continuity is so screwed up is that he often lends himself to kind of like prestige miniseries. And, you know, there have been people that have kind of used that format and used the Surfer to kind of do an artistic statement. I mean, we already talked about, you know, the 70, well mentioned like the 78 graphic novel with Stanley and Jack Kirby, and which is like one of the first things to be called a graphic novel. And we can think back to Silver Surfer's original series, which was like, you know, a maxi sized like comic book and everything. And, you know, 
he's appeared in so many sort of special limited series and graphic novels like over the years and Silver Surfer Black definitely has that prestige feel to it. Like you can get away with doing something that doesn't feel like mainstream superhero comics when you're doing a Silver Surfer comic. Mm-hmm. And something like Silver Surfer Black in terms of the style, it's about as stylistically innovative as anything that you're going to see at the big two, right? And the fact that the Silver Surfer is this kind of prestige character that you can do that kind of story with. I mean, if I'm going to situate that within his history as like why it's interesting, I mean, that's definitely part of it. But I mean, I also just love the art. It's great. Like, it's so good. Just like, the, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how I described it, but just sort of like the fluidity of everything makes, it's very similar to Parable in the sense that Parable, so this is the AES graphic novel that they did through Epic Comics um, with Stanley and Mobius, um, two issues and got collected in a trade paperback called Parable. It's like, if it was just Stanley's script, it would be a Stanley script, but it's Mobius drawing it, right? And that makes it seem profound. And I would say Silver Surfer Black is very similar. If that was just a script, I'd be like, eh. But like when you add that art to it and you add the art sort of drawing out metaphors of the interconnectedness of light and dark and life and death, that's when it turns into something better than what that script is on its own, which is how comics should work, right? It's a collaborative mm-hmm. medium. So I'm not like hating on writers here or whatever. That's just like the Silver Surfer lends themselves to that kind of like creative experimentation on the on the level of art. And that's what elevates a number of his stories. That's what elevates any comic book story. Who doesn't love reading a comic book with amazing art? This is a visual medium. This is what we're here for. Absolutely. And, you know, but but at the same time, there's definitely something to be said for like a Stan Lee or a Donnie Cates using the Silver Surfer because they know they'll get a good artist who will make them look good yeah. and drown out their uh, uh, writerly. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, we could, kind of, we could kind of add the down slot series with Mike Allred art to also that true. a little bit too. <laughs> yes, agreed. Um, yeah. Thinking across media now, have uh, I have either of you watched the Silver Surfer cartoon from the 90s? Uh, yes, I, I have. <laughs> okay, because I was going to say, I, I don't remember much about it. Like it came in at the tail end of like the X-Men and Spider-Man series. So by that point I was checked out, but I kind of, I remember it being a product of that time when like network and syndicated animators were starting to play with computer animation. Yeah, there's some of that. I mean, the thing that I remember, I haven't seen it for a while. It used to all be up on YouTube. And then when Marvel started to get a little bit, probably when they got bought date by Disney, it probably mm-hmm. disappeared from YouTube. Um, Cause I needed to find a clip from it recently and I had to get it from daily motion, which I'm like, Oh, daily Ooh. motion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't like having to resort to that. But um. But clean clean the, your PC. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Um, but the thing I find really striking about that cartoon is like, I have no idea who it was meant for. It's a fairly, like it takes references from a lot of things because Frankie Ray is in it, so it's taking references from multiple Silver Surfer series. But it's very much like the Stanley John Bushima, like original series in terms of a lot of it is Silver Surfer just soaring around being like, woe is me and like monologuing. And you're like, was this for kids? Or, cause like, it's weird. It's just really weird. Anyway, it lasted for one season. So presumably a lot of people thought it was weird. <laughs> it wasn't really probably hitting the mark with the right people. And it, it Thanos is in love with, I think, chaos. Cause you couldn't say death. <laughs> And like like Master Chaos, like Lord Order and Master Chaos, wherever they were. I, I think she's Madam Lady Chaos. 
uh, or uh, Madam Chaos. So there's one episode <laughs> with Adam Warlock that is not a recognizable Adam Warlock. There is some Pip the Troll because, you know, yes, let's bring in the debauched troll into the kids' cartoon. <laughs> and it just, it's a lot of weird, deep cuts that don't really work. And it doesn't take place in any sort of recognizable Marvel universe. Because they use the the graphic novel origin, not the because there's no Fantastic Four, but it still yeah. sort of follows the same basic origin tropes without the FF. Mm-hmm. It's a weird series, and yeah, it does definitely do that '90s, mid to late '90s, or late late early to mid '90s computer generated animation stuff that that at the time looked really cool and then you go back and you watch Transformers Beast Wars and you're like what were they thinking (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah and yet you know there's there's a generation who swears by that shit you know and I'm not listen that's that's what you know what I mean like that's not a judgment it's what they watched I mean I I remember liking Beast Wars when it was on and then I went and watch some on YouTube or something it was like these scripts are still good but the animation is now just so incredibly dated that it's like oh boy it's like going back and wa- it's like for me like going back and watching old He-Man cartoons that animation oh. was sub good oh yeah all that <laughs> that whole period there you're G.I. Joe, the original tra- the original Transformers isn't any better than Beast Wars when you when it comes down to that. It's mm-hmm. it, it's not all Transformers the movie. There's a lot of it, it's not until the 90s when they stopped being all TV commercials that you started getting some really quality animation again. And when Warner Brothers started putting money back into Warner animation. Mm-hmm. Yes, I have a bias there. I'm freely admitting but it's not just batman the animated series it's tiny tunes and animaniacs and pinky in the brain and this is a real tangent uh <laughs> it is but that's good because it's, it's giving me time to think about what silver surfer would have been the lead into like when it existed on saturday mornings on fox and oh. if like they still had wrestling on saturday mornings at that point because like whatever the superhero cartoon was it was always like the end of sort of like the kids animation block and then it was like it was either wrestling or american gladiators or maybe at that point it was reruns of Cops. Who knows? <laughs> uh, oh, I think this might have been at the same time, if not right after that god-awful Avengers cartoon that existed in that same block. That, 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 one I, that one I don't remember because I had to seek out the Silver Surfer cartoon because I didn't see what it was on. Let's see. Oh, no. The, the Silver Surfer predated that because the Surfer was 98 mm. and yeah. Avengers United They Stand was 99. The, the thing that was f- kind of funny about this cartoon is that they didn't have the rights to any of the, you know, A-list trinity avengers so you had no cap no thor and no iron man 
because Iron Man had his own cartoon with Force Works on another channel. I'm not entirely sure where Thor and Cap were. So it's, you know, it's, it's Wasp and Hawkeye and Scarlet Witch and Wonder Man and Falcon and Vision and Hank Pym. But they're all in those very 90s, like, armored costumes oh. from the run-up to Onslaught when they were all... Like when Janet was a bug person and it was not a good time to be an Avenger. Because they got rid of the bomber jackets. That's why. (laughs) I'll take the bomber jackets over the clunky armor. (laughs) I guess those characters were in there. I I guess they were, they popped up in cameos. But Mm. I remember watching the first couple episodes and being like, where the hell are the, like the, the, major avengers i can't believe you guys haven't asked about the fantastic four rise of the silver surfer movie and whether it was all a dream that we <laughs> that we collectively dreamed or whether it actually existed oh i saw that in the theaters i did too i remember seeing it in the theater because the only reason i even went to see it in the theater is because it was really really hot that day and we wanted to go and do something in air conditioning and then we were disappointed that it was only like an hour and 40 minutes and that was not enough time in the air conditioning and that was my dominant memory of the movie (laughs) because it was a riveting cinematic experience uh... (laughs) i just wanted more time in the air conditioning i didn't have air conditioning in my apartment and it was an enjoyable experience on that level i was i was indifferent to the movie i wasn't expecting it to be good but it could have at least been long (laughs) yeah no I, i my wife and i were moving into our first mutual apartment versus me you know sort of moving into her far too small apartment and I was, she was working, so I had to be waiting in the new apartment for the, the cable guy to come and hook up the the cable and such. And, and he did, and there was an, he, he arrived at the beginning of his, like, six-hour window, which never happened. Yeah. Right, but it did, and it was 90 degrees, and there was no air conditioning in this apartment, because there wasn't, he was there to was he was just there to put in the cable we hadn't moved anything in yet so i was like there's a movie theater within walking distance let me go and walk to see a movie because it'll at least be pleasant while my you know while amber finishes work and comes to pick me up because we only had one car at the time and she had taken it and yeah what was playing was rise of the silver surfer and again i was like damn now i've still got another three and a half hours to kill how many people went to see to escape the heat is that the entire box office of the movie it was a brutally hot summer <laughs> I, I mean I, I have to imagine that there were there were people who went and they were like yes I'm finally getting to see Galactus on the big screen oh, yeah. and then they didn't get that and well, that was such oh, yeah. a bizarre era because, I mean, it was like you were going to have Iron Man like the next year. And it was just at this time, like before everything changed, before the MCU started. So it's this real outlier, weird movie. Because you're, you're sort of in the heart of the X-Men movies and Batman Begins had dropped mm-hmm. a, a year or so before. And you're, yeah, you're a year out from Iron Man, a year out from The Dark Knight. It was a weird time because... The previous summer had been X-Men The Last Stand and Superman Returns. Mm-hmm. So the, the, neither of those 
did a whole lot for the superhero movie genre. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we had a bunch of conversations about like, is the superhero boom over that summer? And it turned out to not be the case. <laughs> it was the first of many such conversations. Well, not the first of many. Another of the of the conversation that we have about that, like every five to ten years. Mm-hmm. Did either of you or do either of you have any recollection of the NES Silver Surfer video game? Oh. I know of its existence from ads, but I did not have a Nintendo growing up, so I have not played it. And Matt, as your fellow old here, uh, I, I still don't remember it. <laughs> I remember it being the most, you had one life and could get hit like three times. I never made it out of level one. I, I, I just, I rented it and I got killed and I rented it and I got killed. It was like after a couple of runs, I was like, no, I'm done. What was, what was like the gameplay where you like on the surfboard and like shooting things yep. or yeah, yeah side scroller you're on the surfboard things are coming at you it was very much out of the Engelhart rogers run there was kree and scrolls and reptil and it was that era it, it didn't have thanos in it so i'm pretty sure it hadn't gotten when it was designed that we hadn't gotten to that point so it was all from silver surfers volume two or three whatever that one qualifies as uh issues like one through 25 it was all the, that the cree this second cree scroll or third or whatever number cree scroll <laughs> we were up to at that yeah, point yeah. it was the a thing that <laughs> The, oh. the weird Silver Surfer tie-in thing that I kept seeing when I was reading through that era of comics for the Silver Surfer Primer was a contest to win a Silver Surfer jet ski. And there's a wonderful picture for the ad, which is like, you know, some happy kid on the jet ski and it's being driven by Silver Surfer and he's holding onto him. And it's like a Silver Surfer branded jet ski and it's a contest. And you're like, I really want to know if somebody won the Silver Surfer jet ski. Like, was this real? Because this is a wild promotion. <laughs> And, also, and of course, I want to make some kind of mom joke about like, ooh, does he come with the jet ski? <laughs> and, and listen, that's a legitimate question. But if we're if we're doing, you know, Silver Surfer themed aquatic conveyances, there's one right on the goddamn nose, folks. <laughs> it's uh, very odd. Not to speak uh, ill of jet skis, they're wonderful things, and you can't be unhappy on a jet ski, but. <laughs> He's the silver surfer, not the silver jet ski dude. Well, he's also not centrally kind of defined by joy, you know? So, I mean, the idea of, like, get this silver surfer jet ski that embodies the joy of silver. It's like, I don't, mm, it's a weird marketing mishmash, but, you know, well, I, t- I take it. I take the silver surfer jet ski. Don't get me wrong. Steve Rogers isn't defined by his time as a soft shoe man, but they still had that contest to let kids be in the Captain America musical that never materialized. <laughs> Until November on Disney Plus, apparently. Yes. Mm. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. <sighs> so, uh, let's let's kind of start winding down here. Uh, Anna, what are you, is there anything, this is, you know, not, does not have to be surfer, Silver Surfer related at this point. Is there anything that you're reading uh, that you're enjoying that you're not covering for the site right now? I'm the worst because, I mean, 
I study comics for my job too. So I'm usually reading old comics and I'm doing the weekly mm-hmm. Excalibur podcast right now. So like when I'm rereading things, it's almost always for that. And like, I just don't have time for anything. I've also had real, this is getting sort of psychological, but I mean, I wrote a dissertation on superhero comics, right? Mm-hmm. So ever since doing that, I have struggled to be as into them as I used to be. <laughs> because it's like spending years like having to try to read every Marvel comic starring a female superhero to come up with a grand theory about representations of female superheroes in Marvel comics takes a lot out of you. I'm sure, yeah. So yeah, I'm kind of behind on my current books and I kind of want to get into some of the stuff that DC's been doing right now. I'm oh, I don't know if that's embargoed, so I don't know if I should talk about that. Is one this, this will be out one, next week. So yeah. oh yeah. Okay, because I am really looking forward to that one star squadron. I like yeah. <laughs> Libra and Russell. I'm there for it. I'm there for sad robots and their, <laughs> their C list team. <laughs> I think that's going to be one that I'm really going to enjoy. I'm, I'm a pre fan of that series. <laughs> uh, we, we also are. You know, it's funny. Uh, ever since Matt and I migrated to, to Comics XF, you know, we were we were looking for like a book that you know we've got the podcast together, obviously, but we haven't teamed up on like regular coverage of a series yet. You know, we we've had a couple of like fill-ins and false starts, but I, I saw uh, One Star Squadron and I said, Matt, I think I found it. Yeah. <laughs> In between you know, Dan's love of Mark Russell and my love of obscure DC minutia, it's perfect. <laughs> Oh God! I, 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 I felt like Marvin Berry at the Under the Sea dance. <laughs> <laughs> you know that new sound you've been looking for? Uh, I will. I will ask uh, only because because you do have the Excalibur podcast. I will ask one uh, Excalibur related question, and 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 really only related to one uh, specific character. <laughs> Uh, because I, I, I am, I, 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 I am Pete Wisdom's unofficial PR manager. Don't know if you knew that. <laughs> I, I'm aware. <laughs> oh man. Um, and we're very much looking forward to having you on the podcast. Once Pete Wisdom starts showing up. <laughs> the listeners I'm dancing in my seat. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, the, the, but, but as the only reason I'm not is because Dan has already claimed it, and I, I need to talk Tim Drake whenever I can. Uh, I, I need to show up for some Pete Wisdom, too, because loves it, me some Pete Wisdom. And to be fair, Liz Large right, might fight both right. of us, so... <laughs> fair. Listen, they're going one issue yeah. at a time. There's the enough to go The fact that around. we have three Pete Wisdom fans, when I thought there were only, eight, I thought there were only <laughs> two of us to begin with. Well, three if you count Paul Cornell. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but what was it what was your excalibur question was there a question there or was that much me pitching no 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 no. <laughs> like as that series goes on and you know claremont moves away and, Dave, and and davis moves away and you start getting into you know a lot of like filler and stuff like is, do you are you dreading dimi- i guess diminishing returns on cover on on the book itself yeah, I mean, we have the Davis run to go through still. So mm-hmm. I'm not really like that worried about like there's, I don't know. I mean, the thing that's been great about that podcast is that, you know, I had a podcast previously, but we don't have guests on that podcast. So it's just us every episode. And it's just kind of like a friend chat, right? But like, 
every guest brings someone something so much different to it mm -hmm. and you know we're privileged enough to have all these like smart and interesting friends you know whether it's like people you know who are comics critics or like whether I mean we have a lot of academics on the podcast because obviously the three of us are sort of academics who study pop culture and comics so I mean like to be able to be like okay we have like this issue coming up and like let's get like an expert in like trauma to like come on and talk to us about the representation of trauma in this comic book and they might not necessarily know Excalibur but they can bring that expertise into it you know like let's have somebody who's like an expert in like ethics come in to talk to us about like the Nazi doppelganger issue you know like let's have like an expert in feminist philosophy to come and talk to us about you know Megan's shape-shifting and how it relates to like Aristotelian like philosophy you know we can do all of these things with sort of individual issues and like even when it's a bad issue we can come up with something right you know we can have like a specialist in representations of like Arab and Muslim characters in comics come to talk to us about like Shadow King and like Orientalist stereotypes and stuff right so I mean there's just so much that it's really just sort of like, I mean, I love Excalibur, so I'm doing the podcast because we love Excalibur, but it's also a frame to just be able to like, <laughs> an excuse to recruit people to like, talk about like a specific thing, right? And the challenge of kind of coming up with interesting things to say about every issue has so far been a fun challenge. I mean, even, see, funnily enough, like our episodes are all about equally popular, but it's like when we do a really bad issue, at first I expected no one would listen to those episodes, but people really want to gripe about the bad issues. So sometimes those ones actually end up being like popular because people have been like, I've been waiting 30 years to complain about this. I am just so happy that you spent like an hour and 20 minutes explaining everything that was wrong with this story. And it was incredibly satisfying. I'm just like, okay. Like, I mean, if that's what people want sometimes, we were mostly like a pretty upbeat podcast and we try to be, you know, generous with the issues. But at the same time, some issues deserve to be chewed out a little bit and we do that as appropriate. I'm not sure what it's going to be like when we get to your pee wisdom and kind of that era. Like, I, I wonder if the audience is going to shift because I know there is a big fan base for that run, but I wonder if it's going to be the same fan base as like for the earlier issues because there are a lot of people that kind of stopped reading and kind of like after the Davis run. So I'm not sure what it's going to be like, but I'm excited to get through the Davis era anyway. Finally recruited some fabulous guests for Prometheum Exchange, which are the two issues, three issues that we had to get through before we finally get back to Davis. So I'm even excited about that because if we have a great guest, it's going to be a great episode. Yeah, you you just would have hit the episode, the issue then that our buddy uh, buddies Jeff and Rick did on their Power Pack podcasts where they had oh yeah yeah they they, they were not a fan they they were oh, not oh god a fan. yeah I should I should see what they made of that because we we struggled but we we somehow managed to talk to about it for an hour and fifteen minutes so for uh, those who aren't aware this is an issue featuring like Power Pack and Excalibur and Nightmare and a nightmare involving Alex Power and an anthropomorphic horse and people merging into a horse with yep. like six legs and human breasts. And it's just a lot. It's really an awful lot. Yep, yep. Unpacking the power of Power Pack. It's they, they've, <laughs> they've made it through the entire original Power Pack and now they're into wow. all of the minutiae before there are the miniseries and stuff later. And yeah, that, that, that issue ranked pretty low on their overall ranking of Power Pack stories. <laughs> Not quite the bottom, but pretty close. I would imagine I'm going to send that to my podcast mates, both of whom are big fans of Power Pack. Excellent. 
Well, uh, Anna, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Final question. Uh, how can people follow you online and your, your many uh, various and sundry activities? Yeah, um, I'm on Twitter, Papard underscore Anna. My Twitter handle is boring because I made the Twitter account to promote my academic work. So I kind of have to be findable under my real name. Um, you can, if you're so inclined, check out my book, Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero, winner of the prize for best edited collection from the Comic Studies Society this year. Um, it's academic, but I think it's sort of accessible. I don't know. I don't want to like promise that it's not academic because it definitely is. But if you want to find my more popular writing, you know, just find me on Twitter and you'll like find my stuff. I mean, I do writing for Shelf Dust and Middle Spaces and Comics XF and check out my two podcasts. They are three panel contrast um, available on all podcast providers. You can find them on Twitter too at number three panel contrast and gosh golly wow at gosh golly wow on Twitter goshgollywild.com and again all of your podcast catchers will find it excellent anna thank you so much for coming on the show thank you so much for having me thrilled to talk about silver surfer for an hour and change that's it for this week's show as a reminder wmq a is part of comics xf where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts battle of the atom chris is on infinite earths and the new bat chat with matt and will co-hosted by our own matt lazowitz and our bud will nevin you can listen to WMQA on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at comicsxf.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQA at patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. A $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail for my collection, a $3 donation get you a slot in the Comics XF staff picks, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from Toxman at Comics XF, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, Kat Purcell from Comics XF, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and Comics XF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, when there was one set of footprints in the sand, that's when the Hulk carried you. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.